it okay on my way to palliative care if we could just drop by and see my garden one more time? When you talk to staff afterwards, they spend time in tears. The only person who's happy is the patient who's getting the wish. 242 having responding code 1. We have a young lady unconscious. Topic approach 1320. Hi, I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship about life in the bush and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. But what we learned after that is that it was the first time in 22 years that those three sisters had been in the same room together. And if you add up their ages, it comes to almost 300 years of sistership. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a subject that's not often spoken of. It's a given that we're all eventually going to grow old and even when we're not quite there yet, it's hard to envision what it's like to lose mobility, to lose health and to no longer have the capacity to be able to do what you wish. This story is about love, it's about respect, it's about compassion, it's about end of life. Scott Chapman, the CEO of RFDS Victoria, has developed a service which is specifically to assist people in their last days. G'day, Scott. Lana, it's great to be here and um, thanks for the opportunity. You've been with the RFDS for many years. Tell me about your work to build RFDS Victoria to what it is today. When people think of the Royal Flying Doctor Service, you know, our hero brand is the Outback and Rescue and it's very important. But when I started working for the Royal Flying Doctor Service Victoria, whom I'd never heard of, uh, I, I learned that it was quintessentially a Victorian story, that um, uh, John Flynn, who founded the, the whole service, was from Victoria. Victoria had the first or started up the first of the states with, its, with the meeting in the Melbourne Town Hall and then opened up uh, its services in the Kimberley region and, and run, ran those for 70 years. Uh, we gave all that info, all that to um, to Western Australia at, in in the year two thousand, and then we retreated back to Victoria, where we had never delivered a service yet. For seven years, we had been delivering services. Um, so for ten years, we were a fundraiser, and then in two thousand and ten, uh, I came to uh, to the organisation and figured that there's three things that uh, we could uh, we could do with this Royal Flying Doctor Service in Victoria. One is we had a greenfield site. We'd never del- del- delivered a service uh, and therefore, um, you know, it was really open to us. Secondly, we had a little bit of money in the bank, about $3 million. We'd always been fundraising and sending those funds to other uh, states and we still do that. Uh, and also there was a brand to kill for, you know, the Royal Flying Doctor Service and everything it stands for, which is quintessentially you know, Australian, look after your mates. It's about quality. It's about service. Um, and with that, set about to build the Flying Doctor's profile and services in Victoria. And over that 10 years, we have gone from uh, six part-time staff and a turnover of about $2.5 million to this year where we have just on 660 staff and uh, a turnover of $50 million. And that journey has been uh, one where we're a very legitimate part of the Royal Flying Doctor Service across the whole of Australia. As well as a legitimate part of Victorian health services, I would say. Well, exactly right. I mean, you know, we're all about overcoming the um, the tyranny of distance um, and distance doesn't always have to be 
uh, a long way away. You can be one hour outside of a capital city and uh, and health services are just not there and you can't get to them because you don't, you don't drive or you're a full-time carer or you're elderly uh, or just or you're sick. Um, so um, so what we've found is that the, the work that we do in Victoria complements the work that everyone does across the country. That's fabulous. What, what do you love about your job, Scott? I think it's... Well, first of all, you have to believe in your product or your service, and I and, and I, I believe that um, uh, that the Royal Flying Doctor Service is very very Australian. Uh, it's um, it, it, it met a need at the time. It was innovative, uh, and and that and the need is still there today. What I love about the job are really the people, uh, the donors who who support us. Are tremendous. Um, we are custodians of, of their money only, and we need to spend it and ap- apply it wisely. Uh, it's the people who who we uh, who, who provide the services from everyone from pilots to ambulance drivers to dentists to doctors um, to mechanics. Uh, everyone's working because they love the organisation, and then through to those who we help, you know, the patients or the uh, um, or the families that we affect. Um, and, and we, we impact on lots and lots of people. So for me, it's, it's been a, a dream 10 years, hard work, but a dream. How did you come to discover that there was a need for an additional service for the elderly? Well, I, I think it, it, as I get older, and I'm in my 60s now, um, as I get older, you start to uh, realise that you can, you can almost touch the other end of your life if you reach out far enough, and that's a scary thought. Whereas when you're younger, it's 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 in the never never. You know, it'll never happen, but it's starting to come. And and as as you start to lose friends, and your parents um, go through uh, through the uh, the last chapter, the last the last quarter, I guess, uh, it becomes a bit more real. Um, and what I found is that by spending time um, uh, in aged care through some of the voluntary work I do, uh, uncles, aunties, all the rest of it. Where, where's the dignity in, in getting old? And, and you have to be tough to be old. Um, you know, as you get older, you've got more ailments. You've got, you know, uh, you've got less relevance at times. And it's, it's, it's hard work. And, uh, and I've seen firsthand how tough it is you have to be to be, uh, to be elderly. And less mobility, I would say, as well. Well, there's that as well. And, um, and I guess that brings us to today's topic, which uh, is that uh, I was in... Um, I was in America helping to set up a, a, a fundraising arm of the Royal Flying Doctors Service over there, just as we have one already in, in the UK. And it was late at night. Um, I was jet lagged. I was trying to find uh, a decent um, television show to watch on the 400 stations that they have over there. And the only one I, could come, I came across, because I was wide awake at 2am, was this uh, show uh, on, on what was called The Wish Ambulance. And uh, it was in Dutch, so I had to read the... Uh, read the subtitles, and it was about a, um, an ambulance officer who had picked up a, a, a patient who was only 44 years old but uh, was dying of cancer and was taking him on his last trip from hospital to palliative care and it just loaded him into the ambulance when uh, he got a phone call saying that the palliative care bed wasn't available for about four hours. So Kays, who was the uh, ambulance uh, fellow who I've met since and I'll talk about that, went into the back of the ambulance and said to the patient, we'll put you back in, in your ward because there's nowhere, you know, the, the bed's not ready. And the, uh, the patient said, I, I, please don't put me back in there. I've been in there for three months. I don't want to go back in. K 
Kay said, well, what would you like to do? And he said, well, while I've been, dry, while I've been lying in my bed and, you know, undergoing my cancer treatment and everything else, I've just wanted to go down to the docks where I worked um, for all my life and smell the sea air and listen to the sounds of the, uh, of the boats and the ships and, and shipping. So Kay's decided he had no other jobs. So off he went uh, and took him down there and organised for the fella's family to come as well and, uh, and it was a tremendous, uh, almost a reunion uh, of fulfilling a last wish. He was te- then telling people, um, the fella obviously passed away eventually, and Kays was uh, at, a, at, a, at a dinner at his place with friends and he was telling them about this, uh, this service or this opportunity or, or this thing that he did. And one of the other people in there said, my mother has just dreamed of wanting to see uh, a particular Rembrandt painting um, at the Rijksmuseum one last time. Could you knock off an ambulance on Saturday? So Kays actually did that and um, there's a magnificent photo of this, this lady lying in her in a stretcher um, with oxygen and everything else and all of her family standing around her in front of this magnificent Rembrandt. And from that, he, the idea was born in his head that, um, you know, there's something in this, that uh, granting a last wish for, for people who are, who are dying um, could be something great to do. So he started this, this going and now it's, it's full-time. It's, it's called Wish Ambulance. It's, it's based in Rotterdam. Uh, he's got six uh, vehicles. He's got lots of volunteer drivers and, and medical people. And um, and from there, it's just kicked on. And now there's about 20 countries that uh, are involved. And I wanted to put Australia on the map as, as one of those countries. So while I was lying in bed watching this show, um, I thought, crikeys, we've got about over 100 um, patient transport vehicles. He's doing this with five. Um, we've got, you know, as we said, you know, lots of staff and we make sure it's a volunteer program for our staff. No one's paid to do it. Um, why couldn't we do something like this here in, in, in Australia and start it off in Victoria? And we had already done a couple of these things. You know, uh, I remember um, you know, 12 months before this, uh, a couple of staff who were transporting um, a lady from, um, from hospital to, to palliative care. Um, it was supposed to be a 40-minute job and they were gone for three hours. So I called them in and said, guys, what's going on? You know, you're supposed to be... Uh, uh, doing the uh, doing the work of uh, of the flying doctors and in this case uh, you know road patient transport and uh, one of the fellows pulled out his phone and showed me a photo and here's two burly um, ambos with tattoos and everything else sitting on a small park bench in a backyard and between them is this um, 79 year old lady who said is it okay on my way to palliative care if we could just drop by and see my garden one more time so here these guys are sitting there with a cup of tea. Well, I couldn't go crook at them after that. And as a result, I thought, well, that's exactly what the flying doctors are about. Yes, we save lives. Yes, we, we provide fantastic health services. Yes, we try and overcome the barriers of accessing good, good health services, but we also do it with compassion. So we're all about better health, better lives. What about better, better, better end of life as well? And from that, we've now done quite a few of those. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs 
to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. really comes down to this point on respect, isn't it? Of um, people come to the end of their life and, and it's granting them to be able to do what they wish or go where they wish to um, in those last days or hours or, or whatever. It, it makes me glassy-eyed, to be honest. <laughs> and and there's, there's fantastic organisations, you know, such as Make-A-Wish and others for for, you know, children under 18, but there's, no, there's not much around for those over that. And in granting a last wish, uh, it's interesting, but the, you know, the wishes of the dying are not, I want to go to Disneyland or, you know, it's pretty much, I'd like to go to the seaside, I'd like to go home and sit in my lounge room and just, and we've done this, and I'll just look at the ornaments and the photos in that room that, that, you know, tells a story of their life and they'll sit there for two or three hours and then we'll take them back to, uh, to the hospital or to the palliative care place. And we continue to get phone calls as people have heard a little bit about it. It was only recently that, uh, that John, or as his family known as Jack, um, we were contacted uh, from a, an aged care facility in Victoria uh, asking uh, whether we could take him to his farm. And he had been... He was 94 years old. He, for 91 years, he'd lived on this farm um, his whole life. In the last three years, he was in aged care. And it was a matter of going back to see his horses, um, to see his neighbours, to look at his uh, wife's rose garden. Um, his wife had passed away six years uh, earlier. We asked, for could someone you know, go and pick up John and take him back to his farm? Uh, we had six staff uh, out of ten uh, available and, and volunteer and two had just come off a very long shift. But they said, yes, we can do it uh, the next day. But because they'd come off of a long shift, two other staff said, well, look, you, you guys go home and get some rest. We know John loved, Jack loves, um, loves the bush and the smell of the bush. So they cleaned and decorated the inside of our, our patient transport vehicle with gum leaves. They played, they found out his, his favourite song and they played that through the radio. And the family drove along behind as we took uh, took Jack from the aged care out to uh, out to his farm, and uh, as a result of that, uh, he passed away only four days after the after the transport. But um, they said he had a, a great smile on his face. And when you talk to staff afterwards, they I mean they spend time in tears. The family's in tears. The only person who's happy is the patient who's getting the wish. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, it's all about compassion. It's all about just, you know, providing better ways or better pathways to, uh, to end of life. And we've done, it, we've, we've done that on, with aircraft as well. Um, and it doesn't always have to be just dying, for example. Uh, and I think you, you and I have spoken about the, the three sisters where the, the 97-year-old sister rang us and said, look, it's my, my 100th 
It's the, it's the birthday, uh, 100th birthday of my older sister and I can get there and, um, and to her aged care place but my 94-year-old sister uh, can't. She's incapacitated. You know, could you help us? And I'm thinking, oh, crikey, he's got to pick, pick this lady up and take her two and a half hours by ambulance to, um, to the aged care home where her older sister's having her 100th. I'm going to have staff. You know, how much is it going to cost? How long are going to have, How long's the party going to go for? Well, the party went for 20 minutes because I suppose if you're 100, it doesn't last that long. She came down from her room. She had, they had a cup of tea, blew out the candles and went back to bed. Um, we then took um, the, the 94-year-old sister back again. But what we learned after that is that it was the first time in 22 years that those three sisters had been in the same room together. And if you add up their ages, it comes to almost 300 years of sistership coming together. So we get a bit teary when we tell these tears. I can see your eyes, you can see my eyes. <laughs> um, have you had feedback from family members? We have. Um, and interestingly, um, although it's not about donations, we will find that family members who, who just don't think that this service exists because the, obviously the very first port of call is Ambulance Victoria and rightly so, they can't take their ambulances off the road um, because of, you know, they need to be ready for emergency work. Because we're involved in non-emergency transport as well, um, we, you know, we can do that. Uh, so we had, you know, we have family members who uh, who'll ring us, um, who are so grateful for for being able to spend that last last moment with uh, with their uh, at, at a place of, of significance. Um, and we we you know obviously with permission we take photos, we provide an album, um, and you know when we launch this, you know we'll probably provide a bear or, or some kind of a, a memento as well to to mark that day. It was interesting when I, I was a, two years ago. Um, I went over to uh, to Rotterdam to meet with Kays and and have a look at what he was doing with his his wish ambulance. Uh, we call it Memory Lane here, um, and um, they're fulfilling with a pure a fully volunteer program. They're fulfilling about nine or ten wishes each week. They have a roster of drivers who have come from police or fire or emergency services or AMBOs who have all trained in that. They've got a roster of doctors and palliative care staff and nurses who, who tell them, you know, these are the days I'm available. And then the call will come in. And uh, it's been everything from a young girl at 21 years of age who wanted to, uh, to go to a concert of her favourite band um, uh, to others who want to go to the zoo. Uh, and what we'll need to do, and following their, their lead, is that we start to build relationships with, uh, with destinations. So the zoo is not going to charge us to go in there, but they'll say, come to the back entrance and we can wheel the person through. Um, it's even gone as far as uh, of people do want to do Christmas shopping before their last, it'll be their last Christmas and uh, and the and the department store will open up uh, after it's cl- after it's closed at ten o'clock, but it's open just for uh, for this patient uh, to do their Christmas shopping. Usually in a stretcher, lying fully prone with oxygen and everything else, through the aisles with a few staff uh, to do their shopping for their family for one last time. There's stories abundant in this, uh, Lana. What does Palliative Care Victoria think of the work you're doing? Well, they're they're very happy about the fact that. Uh, Anything to do with dignity in dying is 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 what they're about, um, and uh, and this is this adds to the program. So we've we've worked with Palliative Care Victoria. We've spoken with 
Palliative Care Australia. We've spoken to a couple of hospitals as well. Um, so they're fully behind it uh, and, and certainly support uh, the work that we are doing. But I, I do want to stress it is there's no charge to the family. It needs to be a voluntary service because you get the right level of compassion and commitment if people are doing it in their own spare time. So far, everyone's a winner. So I know you've created this service uh, within Victoria to go on for generations, which leads me, I guess, to then ask, if you could project yourself, Scott, into your last days, what would be your last trip? For me, I'd like to emulate what a a young 41-year-old mother uh, wanted to but couldn't. Uh, We received a phone call uh, from a hospital up in Mansfield and this young mum of 41 who had two children uh, with brain tumour wanted to go back to the high country um, to uh, to smell the air and to see the see the wattle and the and the gum trees and the mountains and the streams one last time. Uh, and it was a very long trip. It was going to take two and a half hours going across the high high country here in Victoria. Um, she wasn't able to make that trip. It was just deemed too hard for her. And interestingly, she'd, she'd been hanging on for a while in hope of this trip. And as soon as it was taken away from her, that night she passed away. So it's interesting that, the, the, that these trips can, um, can prolong uh, life because it gives them something to look forward to. I've always been an outdoor person. Um, one of the great things about the Flying Doctor is I get to see a lot of this land. And for me, it's very simple. I just want to go up to the high country in Victoria um, on one of the mountains uh, and just smell the gum leaves and look across uh, some of the, the blue valleys. It's as simple as that. And then you can do with me what you like after that. It's just wonderful. Thank you so much, Scott. You've, you've brought a tear to my eye on this whole thing. My own parents uh, are reaching their 80s now and this service really resonates with me. Um, it seems to me as you've been saying, that when a person has lived for many decades, they deserve that respect and that love and the care uh, for all that they've done across their lifetime. And anything that we can do to help them uh, in their last days that allows them to pass peacefully and at ease uh, can only help. And I'm I'm just so impressed with this service and I wish it was broader, not just in Victoria, and hopefully maybe in the future it will be. Absolutely. Everyone's got their personal story and everyone certainly can relate to death being a part of life. We want to live a great life. Let's have a great death as well. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.